Okay, good evening. Um, I'm Roger Hertog, Chairman of the Executive Committee, and let me welcome you all here this evening. Um, before I do this short introduction, um, let me welcome as well 32 members, if there are 32, are, are you 32 this evening? Okay, good, about 32. About 32 West Point cadets are with us this evening. And I think we have a number of Hunter College and York Prep students here as well. So, so we, have been, we will have um, an interesting discussion afterwards, but um, thank you all for attending another one of our, I think, really fascinating discussions about important new books um, with serious and historians. Um, the book we're here to discuss this evening is called Maximalists, America in the World from Truman to Obama. A scholarly, and that, by that I mean serious, well-written, and I would go as far as to say almost gripping history of American foreign policy since World War II. Its publication is well-timed to provide us with a broad historical perspective on national security questions for our next presidential election. And sadly, there are many such questions today. The author of Maximalist is Stephen Sistanovich. I always have trouble pronouncing it, so I say it very slowly. Um, Professor Sistanovich is at Columbia University and is a senior fellow on the Council on Foreign Relations. He served in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and President Clinton. What he's offering here is essentially how each of the presidents, from Truman to Obama in turn, dealt with the national security questions of that time period. He's sometimes critical of certain actions of presidents and members of the cabinet. But Steve Sistanovich doesn't go at this in a politically tilted way. It's a serious, fair-minded discussion from, from a scholar who's looked at and thought about this entire period. <laughs> Professor Sistanovich's thesis is that there's been an ebb and flow in the US approach to world affairs, especially in the last 70 years. Sometimes that approach is veered towards a maximalist approach, a slant referred to in the title, which he calls the school of more. More involvement, more influence, the United States reaching out and doing more things. And then it's veered in the direction of retrenchment, which he calls the school of less, where we step back as a country. We're fortunate that we have this evening with Professor Sostanovich a conversation with another great historian, someone who's been on this stage many times. 
Robert Kagan, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And I should note, Robert Kagan is a strong supporter of this book. In fact, Bob goes so far to say that maximalist will immediately join George F. Kennan's American diplomacy as central reading on US foreign policy. This is truly high praise from another great historian. And so with that as an introduction, we'll go on for about 45 minutes, then we'll open it up for questions. And let me now welcome Robert Kagan and Steve Sostanovich. Well, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, thank you all for being here. And I must say, uh, every time uh, people are willing to talk about history and hear about history, it, 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 it warms my heart because it's an increasingly lost art, I think. Uh, people always say Americans were never very good at history, but I think we get worse as, uh, as the years go by. Um, I am a huge fan of uh, Steve's book, and I, I will just tell you that if you want to get a, 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 among other things, a survey of what's been going on in American foreign policy uh, from the end of World War II to the present uh, in a really, you know, as, as Roger says, a grippingly written tale uh, Steve has managed to pull that off, while I can assure you, uh, covering all the bases in terms of the scholarly literature and knowing what everyone else has said and responding to it without your noticing, which is the best kind uh, of response. Um, so it, it really is a great book. And it does address this, this phenomenon, which I've noticed, I, I've done, uh, Steve has covered the sort of post-World War II period. I've spent the last 10 years of my life everything pre-World War II, um, and this oscillation in American foreign policy uh, goes back uh, well beyond World War II, and it begins, I would argue it begins at the time of the revolution, this sort of, there is a lot about the United States that leads Americans out into the world, the desire for commerce, uh, the universalistic values, um, power itself, which tends to lead nations out, um, but there's also a lot that then makes Americans want to draw back in after they've gotten out there. They don't want to pay the price of this kind of involvement. They always think of themselves as minding their own business, even as they expand outward into the world. So I've seen this phenomenon uh, play out all through American history, but Steve has done a wonderful job of delineating exactly how we move in and out of these periods of high involvement uh, and then periods of wanting to step back and say, what are we doing this for? And, and it couldn't be a better moment uh, for this discussion because if you had to ask, and I will ask Steve later on, where in that cycle exactly are we right now? Um, obviously, Obama is a, is, a, is a retrencher, but has the retrenchment already ended uh, is a question that I will ask Steve uh, eventually, but before I uh, get to that uh, part, take your uh, time, Bob. No, I'm going to I'm going to let you talk in just a second. I mean, you know, it's hard for me. You know, let other people talk. Uh, in fact, I'm going to let you talk right now. Why don't you? Why don't you begin by letting us know what it is you're talking about? 
You don't want me to answer that question? You want to answer that question Where first? Where we are now? Sure. Well, one of the things that surprised me about this book in uh, reading it, <laughs> researching it, was how much retrenchments are the same. Uh, the ideas, the slogans, uh, both the kind of high concept and the low concept are very much the same. And they're also, they also come apart in kind of the same way. They start to come apart when the retrenchment president figures that he's done the job uh, that he was elected to do, which is get out of the mess. Um, and, he's and they tend to be overwhelmingly reelected because the American people wanted to get out of the mess. And then the problem is arises of how to deal with new challenges that weren't exactly on the agenda, weren't part of the concept, um, and that occasion a lot of criticism. Retrenchment presidents are irritable presidents. They don't like hearing that they haven't done, they haven't thought about new challenges. They don't want to think about new challenges. They deny kind of that there are new challenges. We are in that phase. But where we are in it is a little harder to say. I don't think we're at the end of it. Retrenchments tend to take a while. Um, you know, I would say that the whole of uh, the Eisenhower administration was a period of retrenchment. For all of the activism and ingenuity of President Eisenhower, basically he became more and more dug in in his second administration to a retrenchment outlook. We didn't have to spend so much. We didn't have to worry about as many things as people thought we had to. He was constantly coping with complaints from across the political spectrum, and his answer to them was, I know better. Uh, this, you have the same in the 70s, where uh, Nixon and Kissinger devise a concept that they think will be good for the long haul. The common phrase of retrenchment presidents is we're finding something that's sustainable. We don't go for those, that up and down business. We want something that can be steady state decade in and decade out. And so we are at that phase where presidents are irritated, but they begin to have to accommodate a little bit because it's obvious that things aren't going great and they have to uh, adjust. They have to respond to criticisms that they are, can no longer say are just the, uh, the stuff of extremism and marginal crank critics, but that it come right from within their own administration, right from the political center. And they begin to find ways of trying to um, show that they are responsive to new problems, but without uh, taking on a new uh, high activist, maximalist uh, approach. There's no president, uh, I, I wrote this in the New York Times last spring and I was, I, people have been bugging me since. Uh, I said, no president who's begun retrenchment has ever found a way out of it. Because there are a lot of reasons they don't like it. They don't, they want to stick with what they have. Changing policy is extremely difficult. Um, but we are in that stage where the debate has become lively. 
where the old retrenchment concept doesn't seem quite adequate to the situation, where people are running around, uh, George Kennan's phrase for this is, as though a stone had been thrown into a beehive. Um, Kennan said, the president doesn't understand what to do in such situations, the Congress doesn't understand, the public doesn't understand, only, said Kennan, I. <laughs> understand. But Kennan is no longer with us, and he didn't really understand in any event. Uh, so we're, we're at this stone in the beehive moment, where people have got a million ideas for what to do, and the world seems to be going to hell. That was true of the late 50s, true of the mid-70s. Um, and uh, usually that debate is something that was Roger suggested we, we, we go with through uh, the next presidential election. But is there an external reality out there? I mean, I'm sure that there are, I know. Uh, fact, is there an external reality out there? Yeah, I like that. That's a kind this of is a heavier question. Con that's a kind of question I used to ask when I was in college <laughs> in the 1970s, but usually not on a stage. But um, what I mean, Steve, <laughs> there are a lot of people in Washington, a lot of foreign policy experts, you know them as well as I know them, who would say, the world is not falling apart. Yeah, uh, Russia is simply, you know, reasserting a natural sphere of influence. China is a normal growing power. It hasn't done anything that upsetting so far. Yeah. What's going on in the Middle East, it's not absolutely clear how American interests are implicated in it. So why cannot even Obama, uh, even if you write that he doesn't really want to fundamentally change policy, why does he feel he, what is he responding to? You know, the American public is not demanding action, as far as I can tell. They may support, they may not support. What is it that he's responding to? And I, that's a larger question. What is it that all these retrenching presidents respond to when life starts to get difficult? You could have argued in the 1950s. What is so terrible about what's happening? Is the Soviet Union really about to take over? I mean, the answer was sort of no, right? Um, so what is going on inside the country the internal reality that is responding to the external reality? Well, uh, one thing that's going on is the American people, as confused as they might be in their answers to pollsters on lots of different questions, are telling the uh, pollsters and the president that they think his handling of foreign policy is terrible. And that always gets the attention of presidents. But in terrible in what way? Terrible in having no really convincing answer to new problems that they don't necessarily understand the dimensions of themselves, but that they think are not something that you can ignore. Let me take Eisenhower again. You know, we tend to remember the, the missile gap, the craziness about how the Soviets were leaping way, way ahead of us, and we tend to think, oh, that was just bad intelligence, you know, the Eisenhower was totally right. What else was happening at the time that made it hard for Eisenhower to convince people that with his great military authority, he thought there wasn't any real problem that you had to respond to? You know, there was Sputnik and there was everything that seemed to call for more defense spending and all of these commissions. And Eisenhower said, no, I want no increase in defense spending. It's just a waste of money. It's just the Congress pandering to the public. 
But you also had the, you know, the Soviets putting pressure on Berlin. You had the Chinese uh, making noises in uh, against Taiwan. You had um, Cuba falling to Castro. You had the world looking unstable in a way that seemed to call for some answer. And the theory of the case that the president had just didn't seem quite adequate. His answer really was, when we have to do something, I'll tell you. Uh, and when we have to use nuclear weapons, I'll be the one who decides. And he couldn't convince people that his sometimes bellicose responses and his sometimes passive responses made sense, that there wasn't a coherent policy that they could count on. Uh, and the result was, is uh, Eisenhower's own speechwriter said, you know, he was the most beloved and the most reviled of presidents. That was his assessment at the end of the administration. I think the Obama administration, you're right, is not convinced that it's dealing with problems that are necessarily going to, uh, you know, lead to world war, uh, lead to dangerous military confrontations for the United States. But they do know that it's not quite the, the world that the president ran for re-election in. Uh, and a, uh, some way of formulating a, a response to that is the, is the demand made of every retrenchment president. That was something that Kissinger Ford, Nixon and Kissinger, Ford and Kissinger, Carter, struggled with throughout the 70s, trying to f come up with a formula that seemed not just uh, to accept diminished American power, some way of bouncing back uh, at a time when the United States looked unable to cope. That's the pressure. It's not, it, it's, it's his, it is partly external reality, to answer your college uh, question, but it's also... Uh, a confidence that the administration has to convey uh, by uh, the way it describes what it's doing and the things that it does. And that's, that has proved extremely hard for retrenchment presidents to do. I mean, it leads me to ask, again, bringing in the external reality, the, the question of whether retrenching presidents actually create the international problems that then force them to at least look like they're changing their retrenchment approach or go muttering into their final days in office as Eisenhower did. Is this did. the old weakness is provocative? Well, no, I mean, I'm actually Donald asking Rumsfeld you. Line one or? thing you don't do in the book because you have a specific purpose in the book, yeah. but when I was reading the book, the one thing that I asked myself at each step of the way was, did, and you could say this about the maximalists too, did they create the problems that were in fact the undoing of their approach? So you could obviously say in the case of uh, George W. Bush, you know, he created, if he writ large, created the, the desire for retrenchment by having an unsuccessful war in Iraq and an unsuccessful war in Af Afghanistan. Do the retrenchers also create uh, a new reality? Look, in the case of uh, Obama, oh, oh, yeah. you could make the case that you know, the failure to, the, the pursuit of retrenchment actually created some of the problems that he's now having to deal yeah. with. You know, it's, it, it is an interesting question. We, 
often talk about Vietnam syndrome. Uh, and for uh, American policy in the 60s, the idea of avoiding maximalist excesses of the past was very important to them. They didn't want to overdo it again. Uh, but they do. Um, and, the, and the legacy of that is important. But I think the legacy of retrenchment is actually underappreciated as, uh, as a phenomenon in our, uh, in our politics that shapes the way we think of strategy later. People have been trying to avoid detente, you know, and the pitfalls of the seeming weakness of it for, for decades afterwards. You know, in the, in the 70s, the people who were unhappy with the way retrenchment looked were some of them able to be part of the Reagan administration and to kind of get even, but they were also in the Bush 41 administration, and they're thinking about what they'd done wrong, the reality that they created, um, it had a lot to do with the kind of policy that they, policies that they followed uh, in that administration, in the Bush 43 administration. You know, avoiding the, the mistakes of maximalism is something that, uh, is, that shapes policymakers for a long time after. So does avoiding the mistakes of retrenchment. Well, the original mistake that they were trying to avoid was Munich. I mean, Munich casts a pretty long shadow over the at least the first 25 well, years of the true. Cold War. It's true. We know that appeasement is a bad thing. <laughs> and, uh, and that has definitely been a, a kind of major trope of American foreign policy thinking for, for decades. But I think in a, in a different way that is still just as powerful as that one image, uh, people have been avoiding retrenchment. Uh, since, the, since the 1970s, trying to think about how to make sure we don't have, you know, you hear this all the time, the hollow army, that we don't underinvest in, uh, uh, in our, you know, the, the well, sources of our strength. Well, you haven't heard a lot strength. of that lately. You haven't, uh, but you will. Because well, that's you what, say you will. That's what happens in, um, in, the, in the late phases of retrenchment, we can get to whether this retrenchment is bound to turn back toward maximalism, because I think it's not a foregone conclusion by any means. Uh, but what you begin to have in the late phases of retrenchment is people saying, you see, we're doing it again. Uh, we are undermining our alliances. We're confusing the public. We're failing to use the strengths of our democratic ideology. I mean, all those things were said in the 50s and in the 70s. Incidentally, in the, in the brief retrenchment of the early 90s, the late Bush 43 and early Clinton administration, there was that same kind of confusion. People said the same thing. And now we're going to hear it again. But I would say retrenchments after failure last longer than retrenchments after success. What I mean, retrenchments I, after success? Well, um, after World War II, there's a little retrenchment before the Cold War starts up in earnest. The Truman administration thinks, you know, we, gee, maybe we don't have to kind of run the, run the world. And there were lots of people who thought you could do it in a kind of easy way. 
and you certainly cut uh, the size of the army, the defense budget, but also uh, you just reduced, uh, you know, you, you kind of reduced strategic aspirations. Um, you had a retrenchment after success in the early 90s. The, the success was the victory in the Cold War and the victory in the Persian Gulf War. And at that point, the Bush administration said, what else is there to do? We're going home and running for re-election by talking about being, you know, education presidents and that sort of thing. Um, that tends to be a shorter retrenchment. Quick, when new problems arise, people are quick to remobilize. And that's what happened. You know, you had two years of confusion in the Bush administration, two years of confusion in the Clinton administration, and then you had a renewed activism. I would think that on that record, you would find that the, this retrenchment will last longer because the wounds are deeper, the uh, dissensus, the, the sort of real loss of confidence in American power was greater, and the need to, uh, the, the, what it'll take to uh, refashion a consensus to regenerate support for activism also take longer. I mean, we've actually, uh, we've had this discussion before, so I'm gonna raise yeah. the same question I raised sure. with you last time we had this discussion, which is... I never get tired of it. How limited, how, uh, is it possible that the phenomenon you're describing is a fundamentally a Cold War phenomenon, that the particular cycle yeah. uh, was a Cold War phenomenon? Yeah. I, I raise that only because since I have been focused on, the, on a previous period, we had a long and deep retrenchment yeah. following a successful war, mind you, World yeah. War I, yeah. that lasted uh, 20 years and brought the world to disaster. Um, then we had the experience of World War II, the lingering memory of that, which, yeah. as you say, elided immediately into the Soviet threat, which, to my mind, yeah. put a floor yeah. underneath any retrenchment. It made them shorter and shallower. I mean, after all, under Eisenhower, we had a million troops deployed overseas through most of his presidency. A million troops out of a 180 million population. Yeah. Uh, today we have about 200,000 deployed out of a 300 million population. So very sizable. Yeah. The question is, when the Cold War ended, did we lose that basic sort of floor under which retrenchment would not go and also the durations would be briefer? That's what, if you had to ask me, what is concerning about the present situation does not necessarily lead to a, an upswing, is that we have a totally different mentality now as a people. I don't think we have a totally different mentality, but I do agree that the crucial element of the Cold War, which is the conviction that there's a single enemy out there to get at, ready to get us, that's gone, although, you know, there are various candidates for, to, to take that role. Um, and uh, I can think of two of them. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. I was thinking that. of one of them. I don't know who the other one is. Well, you know, there's the, 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 the big state, uh, the rising power of China, yeah. which you can imagine as this, the, the source of a new competition. And then there's jihadism. Right which is, you know, a, a, it's a different one. Yep. Um, that you don't have yet. A clear, a clear consensus that this is, requires a, a real remobilization of American effort. 
But I think you have some kind of elements of our foreign policy DNA that have gotten, um, that are still pretty strong. And that I would say outla already outlasted the Cold War because you saw them a little bit in the, um, in the 1990s. And let me mention just a few of them. Because I think there's still the American reaction to crisis. One is our allies are not going to be very much help to us. You know, other countries are going to solve problems for us. Interestingly, the Obama administration is making a serious run at trying to say, no, no, and this is still basically a, a retrenchment mode. Get other people to, to take care of this problem. The UAE. Yeah. So one, one thing that I think is a sign, will be a sign of activism, and you, again, you saw it in the 90s, is if you want to fix something, you just gotta, you got to count on the United States to do it. A second is you don't count on, uh, on international mechanisms. Um, my, my favorite quote of this kind is Hillary Clinton at the climate change conference in 2009. She said, I haven't seen anything so badly run since my eighth grade student council. <laughs> you know, it's Americans talk about how we think multilateralism is really a great thing, but we actually don't believe that that's how problems get solved. And, and when we really want to solve some problem, we tend to push that. Uh, I, I point out, when the, uh, the negotiations with the Iranians got serious, we pushed aside the P5 plus one and went into the back room with the Iranians. Uh, you know, that's, that's the way we think, we it think you get it. It reminds me of my favorite Madeleine Albright quote, which you know well. We stand taller and see farther. Yeah. Than our allies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the reason we have to uh, defy them and shouldn't pay any attention to their criticism. It's not their fault. Yeah. We stand taller and see yeah. farther. It's see further. <laughs> we also don't think that halfway measures uh, are... Uh, likely to solve problems. That, you know, there's an American instinct that if you've got a real international problem, you've got to fix it. Uh, and finally, one that I would, I think is an interesting sign of maximalism is, or renewed activism, is a conviction that you've got to solve problems quickly. Because the American people, all presidents, activist, ma maximalist or retrenchment think the American people have a short attention span. And so they think you've got you've to get something done in two or three years. Retrenchers are the ones who have the most serious dissent to that. They think you can convince the American people if you have a low enough level of effort and steady to go on for decades. Maximalists think, no, the American people are never going to do this for more than two or three years. So that's why you've got to do it big. That's what George Marshall thought about the Marshall Plan. That's what Lyndon Johnson thought about the war in Vietnam. You know, it didn't work out quite that way, Lyndon. But, uh, you know, maximalist surges, people know, are going to be brief. When you, start, uh, when you start hearing President Obama say not that something is going to be a really, really long struggle, but that we're interested in wrapping it up in two or three years because that's all the American people want, then you'll be on to uh, a new phase of Well, policy. he has said that we're going to degrade ISIL yeah. in yeah. two or three years. 
Now, maybe it's yeah. the degrade that's the key word yeah. there. It's the ultimately, <laughs> that is ultimately destroyed. And then sometime <laughs> down in the future, we're going to defeat them. Yeah. yeah. The uh, um, retrenchment presidents tend not to believe in defeating adversaries uh, because they, don't, they think you can have a sustainable uh, relationship that the American people will support uh, and that will, you know, keep you going and keep uh, security threats at bay. I mean, that's, a lot of serious people believe that, and honestly, doesn't it make sense? I mean, it sort of has a coherence to it and a strategic elegance that sounds right. Uh, but our more, but our active, our maximalist presidents don't approach things that way. They tend to think short bursts of activity are what get uh, problems fixed. Okay, so let me get you to put your scholarly money yeah. where your scholarly mouth is. Yeah. And you tell us, based on your extensive knowledge of how this all works, what is the next president going to be? More retrenchment or turn to maximalism? And how will we know soon? Uh, well, I, I think this is, and this probably, it, well, no, this isn't actually so new, but let, let, I was going to say, one of the things that makes that hard to answer, in fact, impossible to answer, is that as is always true in retrenchment, party alignments get really shaken up. And suddenly you don't know who are the uh, isolationists and the minimalists. And I mean, I like to say the party that, is over, that overdid it last time around becomes the isolationists. You know, McGovernite, uh, Democrats in the 70s were thinking, oh my God, Vietnam was so terrible. We've got we've to make good. Re McGovernite Republicans today are uh, thinking the same thing. We don't want to be George Bush. You've got a pretty lively debate within both parties. And if you can tell me uh, that Hillary Clinton is going to be the Democratic nominee and is going to be elected president, then I think you will have an activist president who is, if not a maximalist, a, a, uh, an activist of a pretty robust post-Cold War kind, a Clintonian. I mean, Clint Clintonism is what I call, the, the name I give this strategy, it's not very elegant, is indispensable nationism. And that means, again, you think the United States has got to solve problems. You figure you've got to really go at it. Um, that seems to be her outlook. She's a cautious politician, and she's not going to let herself be caricatured. But that seems to be kind of not only in her bones, but in really it's the default position of the Democratic foreign policy establishment, Clintonism. That's why President Obama's been so unhappy with it. If you can tell me... Uh, who the, Demo the Republican nominee is, you know, then I think you can, you can also have a little bit of an answer as to what the activism is going to be. But I think there's going to be a serious challenge to indispensable nationism in the Democratic Party. That's why Senator Gillibrand and Senator Warren both voted against the president on Iraq and Syria, so as to be able to say, I didn't make that mistake. Um, so you're going to have people trying to say, 
within the de democratic process, the Democratic Party's process, uh, Hillary is too maximalist, too indispensable nationist for us. Um, and you're gonna have the same thing in the, uh, in the Republican Party. It's not, it, to me, it's a little less clear um, which candidates will stand for what, but I think we know uh, at a minimum that uh, Senator Paul, uh, in his bones, uh, believes in uh, a less than maximalist foreign policy. I think that's but incidentally, I'll just say one other thing about this. Retrenchment debates are fun. They're great for those of us in the business, and they're very stimulating because they really do bring out uh, a kind of controversy about where the United States ought to go, what its goals ought to be, how to mobilize uh, behind them, uh, and also they raise all kinds of questions about whether that makes sense. The debates of the late 50s were much more interesting than anything that had come, to be honest, uh, in previous uh, years and in most of the Truman administration. The debates of the late 70s were very robust. I think we're gonna have a great time in the next couple of years. Well, I'm, certainly you're gonna have a great time. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just, I have to just register my, my yeah. doubt about whether we're just, as I say, whether we're still in those old kinds of phases. Okay. Because let me just give yeah, you yeah. two examples. Okay. I mean, the big turnaround when, uh, when Kennedy was elected, those guys were coming in, great guns. What do they call the little, the boy commandos? Is that what Adlai boy, Stevenson? Boy commandos. Right, yes. the Adlai Stevenson, that's a great line from the book. Um, and then, you know, Reagan he really- He meant the president. I know, <laughs> and his brother probably too. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Reagan really led, a, you know, I mean, Carter sort of began it, but yeah. Reagan really led a major yeah. revolution in the way to think about right. American foreign policy. Yeah. I have a hard time, honestly, even, Clintonism is a little lukewarm, you know. Don't let's not forget Bill Clinton was a reluctant, indispensable nationist. First, it was the economy stupid. It was the economy stupid. But he never he got, came up with a better slogan than no, no, indispensable. I, I get it, but he that. backed into every intervention. It was a anyway. The question is, are we really heading toward? You know, I would say, contrary to maximalists, we're yeah. likely to get a president who's going to try to do more with less or at least do more with what we already have. For instance, on a very important question, yeah. will they, like Reagan, like Kennedy, reverse the downward trend of the defense budget? That's gonna be a big, big issue. Big indicator, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and that is gonna be a, an, it's gonna be an important debate and it's also gonna be an important element of American uh, ability to cope with problems in, a, um, uh, in an activist and confident way. I think there are plenty of reasons to question this and to say somebody else besides an indispensable nationist may win the debate. And even, you know, even Hillary Clinton, I agree with you, has said in, I mean, take this interview that she gave with, um, um, the Atlantic. Your interview. The Atlantic. Um, uh, and in which she said, she had all these criticisms of Obama, and everybody thought, wow, you know, the campaign has begun. You know, the knives are out again. But she said a lot of things in that same interview 
that indicated, you know, you've got to have the American people feeling good about the economy, about their middle class status, to support the kind of international role that the United States should have. You know, you can make a good case that the domestic agenda has not exactly been exhausted uh, in the uh, uh, in the Obama administration, and that is going to be a powerful issue in the uh, in the elections. This isn't going to be just a foreign policy election, but it is going to be an election in which foreign policy plays a role. Remember, in 2012, it didn't. Nobody could find a way to disagree with the Obama administration. Even though Romney was right, it turns out, about everything, and then... So it seems, but the, the, it will... Foreign policy will play a role in a way that it didn't last time, and there will be advocates of something more closely approximating American leadership, more closely approximating Clintonism, more dangerously reviving in a way that the American people may not support uh, the idea of the United States as, um, you know, as the only power that can be counted on to kind of keep things going in the right direction internationally. Well, I, I, I think that that is the right uncertainty to end on. I will just in, remind that there was a time, again, these were still the American people in the 1920s and 30s, that the worst things got in the world the less they wanted to have anything to do with it. It's true. And the you know, harder it got to do anything about it, the less they were inclined to want to try. I am so eager to have Bob get over the 20s and 30s <laughs> You're part not the only. of his research. My wife, my wife it is would bumming too. him out and <laughs> making him think that, you know, this is what America is. No, it's what and America has been, <laughs> has been and potentially yeah. can be. And, and look, it's a, it is the way in which America res responded to economic distress. And, um, and there was a lot else that went along with it. But if you, I think Senator Clinton is right about this. Uh, if you don't, do we call her Secretary Clinton now? You look distressed yes. there. Uh, I was very upset with what you called She's her. right. <laughs> that you've got to be able to offer uh, a, uh, in a, a revived economy. Kennedy and Reagan knew that too. And in fact, it's, I would say, likely that, most, that both of them thought that they would fail if they, didn't, uh, if they didn't get the economy right, even though they were committed to, to an activist formula. Well, the formula was increasing the, the, the budget deficit. Yeah. Sure. Because you had to pay off domestically while you built up the defense budget. Okay, let me say one more thing about that. And that was a kind of confidence that those presidents had that flew in the face of a lot of professional advice. It flew in the face of what the predecessors thought. And, you know, Carter agreed to increase the defense budget too. Uh, he, in fact, he agreed to increase it rather significantly. Yep. But he didn't believe it. He thought it was totally unsustainable. He said, he wrote in his diary at the end of the administration, what we need is more detente. We need five or six more years of shaky detente because we can't afford the in defense increases that I've just proposed. You know, Ronald Reagan came in and in proposed increases that were way above what Carter did. And, uh, you know, sailed through. 
So that, you know, presidential leadership and conviction are also important. Okay, I think it's time to uh, give you all a chance at Steve. So let me just say that uh, if you want to ask a question, please come up to the microphones. Uh, that's the only way we really can get this uh, recorded. Please state your name. Please ask one question, and please try to make sure it actually is a question. So, <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is George Shea, and um, I'm a member here. Uh, my question concerns um, two obvious uh, sudden shocks that <coughs> occurred in uh, Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And um, are those kinds of conditions different from a, a Vietnam-type uh, increase? in <clears throat> maximal uh, approach. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, they definitely are. They produce an excitable uh, reaction. And, uh, and, and I'd add a couple of others to them that, per, that uh, were shocks to the, uh, you know, the mind of Washington uh, and to the you know, the president and his advisors. Um, the invasion of Korea uh, was an unbelievable shock to, uh, uh, to Truman. You know, this was not the kind of subversion that they thought you were going to have in Western Europe. You know, a little insurgency in Greece or maybe even in Italy. Uh, it was tanks rolling across the border. Uh, I would say the invasion of Afghanistan had something of that same quality. Um, but I think there have been other shocks to which uh, people have, presidents have responded uh, with the same basic conviction, not uh, throw everything at the problem uh, determination, but a sense that events show that the United States is being, is being threatened by processes and adversaries that it didn't understand previously. And I think you had something of that in the late 50s. Sputnik was a shock, too. Uh, but it wasn't the only shock, as I mentioned. You had the world seeming to unravel. And that was as important as Sputnik itself in making people think, we need a new theory of the case. I think in the 90s, uh, genocide in the Balkans made people think, you know, the world isn't going to be quite as nicely run and easily managed as we thought. We've got to do something really different. So even lesser shocks than Pearl Harbor and 9-11 can produce a re-energized foreign policy. Yes, sir, well, uh, Gerald Walpin, and I, just following up on that last question, uh, when you talk about ebb and flows of retrenchment, and uh, it, wouldn't that a prediction as to the future, which you were asked about, depend upon what happens. Do we have another 9-11? Do we have more beheading of Americans yeah. um, and such activities, plus a leader who uses those to convince the American public that it's our time to stop retrenchment? Absolutely. But let me, I'll let you in on a, my crude, um, cruder formula for how you know when we're going to have retrenchment and when we're not. 
and that it's this. I didn't put it in the book because I knew it would seem too stupid and people would criticize me for it. Even numbered decades are, <laughs> see, I was right. The 40s, the 60s, the 80s, the 2000s are maximalist decades. Give or take a few years. The 50s, the 70s, the 90s, and the 2000 teens are retrenchment decades. So now you know. <laughs> now, 2016, it's a little early in the 2000 teens to declare the decade over. But, you know, it's probably been, you know, will have been almost a decade since the surge. You could count it that way. But at any rate, if you could put that in for it, do that about investments, I think then you should have put it in the book. Yeah, that's right. But, well, I'm not sure it works. Buy well. defense stocks. I, I don't know. The, I, it, it is a, uh, you know, these cycles are not going to continue forever. But they've continued for quite a long time. You're recognizing questioners, Bob. I am, and I'm going over here. Yeah. My Thank name you. is Sam Rosen. Uh, you mentioned China and jihadism as two of the issues for the future. You didn't mention Russia. Um, how much since World War II can the uh, ebb or flow of the presidential thinking be tied to the conduct of Russia um, from 1945 until now? And it, would Russian, would Putin, Russian Putinism or Putin-Russianism uh, indicate going forward that we might see a greater uh, flow going forward in this decade? You see, that's the external reality that yeah. he's talking yeah. about. I got you. Okay. I got you. I, I didn't mention Putin because I just wanted to, and you know, diss him a little bit. <laughs> not really, not really a first-order enemy of the United States. Just a, a two-bit type. Look, the reason I wrote the book over the spanning the period that I did was to try to make people see that our, uh, just to, to carry on an argument with Bob, actually, about to see that American foreign policy modes aren't just uh, a function of the Cold War. Uh, the, uh, you're right. In the Cold War, it's the activities of the Soviet Union and the perception of what the Soviets are doing and how the president sees it that shapes policy, whether it's maximalist or, um, uh, or retrenchment. You know, there's some, they're the little, they're the proxy wars, you know, how to understand Vietnam in relation to, uh, to this, the overall Soviet threat. That's a complicated question. But at any rate, broadly speaking, it's the Soviet adversary. But after the Cold War, I think you get something very similar. And in fact, I would say really the same pattern. Um, what's the activism of the 90s triggered by? It's not Russia. It's, it's a whole set of other uh, problems that energize American policy. And to start with, as I said a moment ago, um, disorder in the, in the Balkans and genocide. After 9-11, it's not the Russians. It's the sense that, you know, while we weren't looking, uh, something really new and different uh, has appeared that's a threat to us, and we've got to deal with that now. I think that Putin has 
contributed to a sense that we haven't got a good theory of the case and we haven't got a, a kind of robust set of American tools to deal with problems as they arise. But uh, I don't think it's the, it's the whole of the narrative. It's not the, the, the perception that Americans have of what's of disorder in the world wouldn't be anything like what it is if it were just Putin. It's that it seems to stretch across uh, a whole set of problems. Uh, my name is Spencer Slagowitz, and I, I guess my question is, is how have presidents specifically reacted or responded to perceived acute relative decline in you know, power or uh, uh, economic standing, especially considering there's a, been a greater call within foreign policy circles to move away from maximalism and deep engagement to more uh, retrenchment philosophy because there, there's this idea that America must come home. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is now uh, viewed in a, in a much more dramatic light than it used to be because you know, the American economic difficulties are arguably greater than they've been at any time since the Second World War. But I think we, we exaggerate, uh, we, we don't exaggerate the problem, but we exaggerate our response to the problem when we think that this is something that we haven't dealt with in the past. The 70s were a real downer decade. I, I see enough gray heads around the building, around the audience like my own and Bob's that to know that people remember what a downer decade uh, the 70s were. People thought the United States was in dramatic decline uh, and that that called for a fundamental reassessment of our international role. Um, that, you know, the, the United States was in decline about 25% of the time in the 1970s, 20, 25%. Um, there was a sense that we just couldn't sustain the international role that we had. There was a sense in the, uh, in the 50s that at the trajectory of Trumanism was equally dangerous to the United States. You know, Eisenhower's Secretary of the Treasury, George Humphrey, said, two more years of Trumanism, we would have had communism in America. <laughs> well, okay, exaggerated. But the sense of decline, that we've experienced before. Uh, Larry Poley, was the failure to reach a status of forces agreement in Iraq, uh, which arguably is one of the chief causes of the Iraq phase of the uh, ISIS attacks, uh, solely the responsibility of the Iraqis, or did we set, that, set them up to fail? Um, I, I think there was, uh, I have not read Leon Panetta's uh, <laughs> memoir, I've only, like you probably, uh, read the press accounts. I gather he believes that there was a very, very strong determination in the White House uh, not to leave uh, any forces behind. A lot of people who worked the problem tell me actually the Iraqis, even if we'd really wanted to push harder, were gonna be extremely difficult. Our current ambassador, uh, who was, I believe, serving in the embassy at the time, says, you know, the Iraqis did not want us there. Um, I think that leaves open the question of what the, um, uh, what the American involvement should be now. Uh, 
I think it will, I don't know who pointed out last uh, week that, uh, you know, s sorties in the Balkans were, uh, uh, and in Desert Storm even more, were orders of magnitude uh, higher than they have been again in dealing with ISIS. So you're, it isn't just that we didn't have any forces there, it's that we've tried to deal with it in a very incrementalist way. You know, which may turn out to work and may not, but I think my, what I would point to there is a sense that you, you still are responding to problems with, uh, you know, the old policy, uh, uh, old policy assumptions in mind. One of the questions was whether you actually needed a status of forces agreement to keep forces there, and some people have pointed out that we are now operating in Iraq perfectly comfortably without a status of forces agreement. Thank you for saying that, Bob, because, you know, as I was giving that answer, I was thinking, wait, what is the... <laughs> what are we doing what's now? What's the arrangement now? And, uh, yeah, you can have forces in another country without an agreement. Um, my name is Jason Loker, and I'm wondering... Um, in what ways can the United States continue to sustain its global power status in a way that's financially sustainable within the next presidential administration? And to what extent do you believe that that should entail the United States um, pursuing cooperation with non-state actors even more so, considering that states can easily break down in today's world as much as they can be strengthened? Thank you. I thought non-state actors were the problem, but you're right, There's a, they're also... Uh, uh, an, an asset, and, uh, and we need to think our way around that problem. On the question of resources, um, um, you know, the, the defense budget is actually uh, now down to, I think, where it was I'm lower than uh, the point at which President Clinton uh, turned it back up. Um, it's about to go under 3%? It's, a, it's hovering around yeah. 3% now. So, you know, for Clinton, I don't think under Clinton it ever got that low, and then he turned it back up. Um, not sure about those exact numbers, but at any rate, when you're down to that, to numbers of that sort, the resource constraints aren't really the, the, the obstacle. You've got other questions. Um, what kinds of forces do you want to have? Where do you want to have them? What do you... What do you need to think about uh, their, the use to which you'll put them? Um, those, are, those are different issues. Those are going to be hard questions. Uh, but they're, it's not quite, you know, I quoted Jimmy Carter before, it's not quite the tight resource constraint uh, that, we, uh, that we imagine. Uh, as to whom we work with, you know, one of the things that definitely happens in a maximalist period is we start thinking about working with all kinds of new people. Uh, that's part of the ambition of an activist policy, is that you envision allies that you, you didn't realize you had. Uh, just take, uh, for example, the way in which suddenly, uh, in the 1980s, um, Polish trade unionists became allies of the United States. Who knew before? Thank you. Uh, uh, since my brother is a graduate of West Point, my question is tiny, a little bit different. It seems like the politicians interfere or defeat American foreign policy it themselves. Uh, 
Yesterday they had a movie about Elizabeth and Errol, S, uh, Errol Essex, that politicians were defeating his army and, and made him fail and been destroyed. The same way if you look at the uh, World War I, which is exhibit right now in uh, the library. It seems to be the politicians are the, the biggest culprits to foreign policy or the peace itself. So if you consider the, no one ever won in Afghanistan, neither Chinese, Mongols, Indians, English tried three or four times, Russians failed miserably, we walked into this mess, and I cannot understand what prompted the president to say, okay, let's go to do it. I mean, it seems so to be politicians. How do politicians well, lead us into these kinds of conflicts? How do they um, no. defeat our best uh, interest? Um, your outlook is very much uh, in keeping with mine. That is, I think, you know, if you look at the people who've made American foreign policy, you see as many bunglers and scoundrels as uh, heroes. And you see as many incompetents as you see brilliant strategists. Uh, the uh, stories of this book are meant to highlight uh, the choices that presidents make, sometimes carried along, often carried along by events that they don't understand at all, uh, generally overdoing it on the upside and on the downside, uh, rarely able to change course. Um, I come away from this uh, his research and writing um, with admiration for a lot of figures in American uh, diplomatic history, but also with a really keen awareness of how many people just regularly screw up. And the, the, the lesson that I draw from this is that, you know, the genius of our system is we change policies and we change policymakers. Um, the, there is a kind of myth about American policy succeeding by staying the course, by continuity over decades. The, you know, as you can tell, I don't believe in that because even numbered decades and odd that. Um, I, I think we succeed by changing course. We, we're good at recognizing when we're uh, going in the wrong direction. Uh, and we manage to come up with a strategy that produces uh, better results. But if you count on um, individual uh, policymakers and individual strategies, you're likely to have your heart broken. <laughs> That's a perfect way to end. <clears throat> I don't know whether the optimistic side or the... <clears throat> I just want to thank Bob Kagan and Steve Sostanovich for really a broad, interesting, enlightened discussion. And for those of you that care about books, but also care about supporting authors, 
Well, <laughs> I don't get a commission on this. What I mean by that is people take so many years to produce these books. And in the end, between the advances and how many books they get sold, <clears throat> these are really labors of love. And if you care about public policy, if you care about the future of national security, if you're thinking about what are the issues that we'll face in the next election, you should go into the store here and buy one of those books and support, and support this wonderful writer, author, and this gripping story. Now available in paperback. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.